Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, we got a two-part show coming out today. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, we're going to be talking to some of the leaders at the North Carolina Beaches, Inlet, and Waterways Association, NC Byways, about their spring Good meeting name. coming. Good name. Good name. The NC Byways Conference coming up April 26th and 27th. Really an important meeting. North Carolina is a leading and innovative state in coastal management. Really cool to learn about their Kind of upcoming. a mini United States, really. Mini United States. Chance for people around the country to listen in on the professional conversation from North Carolina. I think it's going to be a great opportunity to, uh, to hear what uh, coastal professionals are doing in that great state. And learn about this upcoming meeting, which uh, is sounds like it's going to be pretty interesting it is i mean they'll walk us through it but uh north carolina is a place to pay attention to when it comes to coastal policy and that's only one half of this show peter can you believe that (laughs) that's part one of this two-parter and it gets better in part two megan blaskovich who is a geospatial maritime expert with walpert engineering uh walport is is a professional engineering firm expert in geospatial management they have been doing a tremendous amount of mapping work in the northern Mariana Islands. And we have the project manager for that project, Megan Blaskovich, who's going to walk us through what it's like to do mapping and geospatial development work in the northern Marianas. Uh, that's a cool show. So I'm looking forward to talking to her. Working with the federal government on some pretty badass stuff out there. So it's a two-parter, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, we hope you enjoy it. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. And by Coastal Protection Engineering, a new name in the coastal engineering industry made up of professionals that are anything but new to coastal restoration. With offices in Florida and North Carolina, this multidisciplinary team provides clients with a full suite of professional services for beach nourishment, coastal resiliency, inlet management, and navigation projects. This is a great team with well-respected industry leading professionals and strong credentials. Working with local, state, and federal clients, they have the horsepower to handle large-scale coastal restoration projects. But as a small business in this ever-changing coastal environment, they understand the need to respond and adapt quickly to every client's unique challenges. Check out CPE at CoastalProtectionENG.com or follow them on LinkedIn. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, welcome to the show, and thank you for taking time to be on the American Shoreline podcast, Kathleen and Ken. Appreciate your time. Great. Thanks. It's, it's great to be with you guys today. 
Kathleen, if you would not mind, as executive director of the North Carolina Beach Inlet and Waterway Association, which we will be referring to as NC Byways, is how they call it in North Carolina, um, tell us about your organization. Introduce our audience to what uh, what NC Byways is all about. Well, um, I've been executive director for about five years, and the organization prior to me, the uh, the executive director was the one who founded the organization, and it's been around for about 25 years. We uh, have two events per year, a spring local governments meeting, which is focused on issues pertinent to local governments and policy, and, is, and a November conference, a fall conference, which is a little more technical, but also has some policy issues. Um, we try to, you know, expand the agendas, meaning that not make them too myopic so that we can keep up with changes and new ideas and so forth and so on. But it's a really great way to bring people together. And the organization, when it got started, was very much focused on these events. We're very big on public-private partnerships. We work with all three levels of government, federal, state, and local. And the events allow the, us the opportunity for those three levels of government to get together with the private sector with an academic twist to it. So we, we have the academics, um, which are key to information, getting information out there, and the government's all rolled into one. So that's sort of how the organization got started, was to bring those groups of people together and to have discussion and conversation on issues pertinent to the coast. We also advocate uh, for the uh, coastal issues. Initially, we were very much involved on the federal level, especially with Word Up and with our um, congressmen and senators. But over the years, um, especially since I've walked in, I've brought more of a, a state government uh, twist into the into the whole uh, group because a lot of the funding that we're not getting at the federal level has now become incumbent upon the state. So we spend our time advocating uh, both on the state and federal level, but we have a focus at this time on the uh, state level because the North Carolina General Assembly is in its quote called long session, um, which is a time that you know, you want to be involved in introducing bills. So the organization, you know, kind of got started a little bit as bringing folks together, advocating for sound policies and getting funding. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, it sure does. And boy, are those organizations that do this sort of thing, Peter, all around the American shoreline, just so important, uh, educating politicians, getting convening people, getting them together, uh, developing best practices as you uh, go could go on and on. It's just absolutely important work. Kathleen, before we move on to Ken, though, I want to learn a little bit more about you. Uh, what what is your path into this to be the executive director of this of this of NC Byways? I mean, how how did you prepare yourself for this kind of job? Well, uh, years ago, I practiced environmental law, so I've always had an interest in the environment. And uh, I'd actually been a presenter at an NC Byway meeting years ago. So 
I knew the prior executive director. I was familiar with the organization. Um, and when the prior executive director departed, I was actually contacted by uh, one of the board members, I guess it's five years in, I should say, right? Um, about this opportunity. And at the time, I was running another environmental nonprofit. So I said, okay, let me, let me check it into it. And I interviewed with them. And at the time, they offered me part-time because the funds were low and I was running another organization. So I'd had other income. So I said, okay. And I took it over and just grew it into what it is today. I mean, the, the bones were there. The structure was there. The organization had a great board. It had a great history. Um, it had a very interesting sort of the way it was set up. And I thought that this was a great opportunity to take something and just really grow it, explode it, you know, and, and it has grown. I mean, our attendance at our meetings is double to triple what it was you know, when I got started. And our, uh, our uh, presence um, in state government as well as the, the, with elected officials has grown as well. So the organization always had a good basics and good bones. I think it just needed to be, you know, put on some steroids and push down a hill really fast. <laughs> I love it. And uh, it's been a controlled ride down the hill to great success. Uh, Ken Wilson, you are a practicing coastal engineer, uh, longtime professional on the coast, uh, do, have done a lot of work in North Carolina over the years now with coastal protection engineering out of wilmington uh, ken why is it important for you as a coastal professional as an engineer to take a leadership role in nc byways and dedicate your time and energy to this organization yeah thanks so quick 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 clarification i sort of play an engineer on, on tv a lot of times but uh my my my, my main background is really in coastal geology um at the, at the wee age of 18 I came down from, uh, from from Baltimore to go to school here in Wilmington, North Carolina, and, and I was happy to take up residency here, but uh, all my initial training was in coastal geology, uh. actually. I was only here for about two weeks uh, before Hurricane Fran came through, so that was kind of my initiation into the coast of North Carolina back in 1996. And um, from there, um, you know, after getting a bachelor's degree and a master's degree here in Wilmington, um, I, I went into the, the professional field, started working for uh, what was coastal, plan, coastal planning and engineering at the time, uh, moved down to Florida for a few years and got oriented into the, the professional environment. And then it was uh, about 2007, I got to move back to, um, back to North Carolina. My, my, my wife was, was uh, smart enough to advise me that, that that would be a better move, that we should move from South Florida and go back to uh, go back to. To, to southeastern North Carolina. So we ended up putting roots down here in, in Wilmington in 2007. And that's probably about the, the time that I, I first got involved in NC Byway, started going to the meetings. I've probably been to every meeting since 2007, 2008. And then uh, about six or seven years ago, I was fortunate enough to be elected to the board. And uh, a couple years a couple years back, I was roped into to being the treasurer on the board. Um, so it, it, it's, it's been a fun ride. But yeah, I mean, as a, as a professional, somebody that, um, you know, now, nowadays, it's, it's more client management and business development, that sort of thing. 
Um, but, it, you know, this is just a, a, a great organization, um, not only to, to, like Kathleen said, to advocate for, for sound policy in the, in the state, but um, just the benefits as a consultant that the organization provides to be able to uh, network with the, the types of clients, the t types of um, representatives from local beach communities who are the majority of our, our clients, um, as well as a lot of other professionals. I mean, there are agency folks at these meetings, there are um, researchers at these meetings, and, and there's a lot of consultants, which you would say, well, th those are your competitors. But I mean, you guys have been around long enough, you know that this industry is a very tight knit industry and, you know, it doesn't take you very long to be in the industry and, and you, you know, most of the major players in that industry. And, um, you know, so we, we see it as, yeah, there's, you know, friendly, uh, friendly competition within the industry, but, you know, we, we really uh, feed off of each other at these, at these conferences. We, you know, we pay attention to each other's presentations. We learn new things. We talk about things over beers. Um, and we get a lot of lot out of these particular types of conferences. Well, there is a ton to talk about in North Carolina. Uh, for the listeners out there, the meeting is coming up April twenty sixth and twenty seventh. So, just uh, just right around the corner, uh, the registration. And I think this is a this is a this is a meeting that is of national interest. When I look at this agenda. Um, you can register at ncbyways.org, which is ncbiwa.org. You can also find the registration information on Coastal News Today. Uh, Kathleen, in, in your role in, as executive director over five years, um, you've been on the front row of some of the uh, most innovative coastal management strategies, I think, around the country, both in terms of uh, the comprehensiveness of the North Carolina shoreline management program and the financing of those uh, projects in North Carolina, Carteret County, Dare County, uh, for professionals around the country listening in firsthand on what's happening in North Carolina, I think is absolutely valuable because there's some real innovations here and you have an incredible agenda. Um, tell us about your impression of the role you have in the organization and what makes North Carolina coastal and waterway management uh, interesting to you and to perhaps uh, participants from all around the country? Well, uh, I too moved to Wilmington in 07. Ken, I didn't know that. And I'm also from Baltimore. So Ken, Ken's my, uh, my sidekick there. So I, I got to give him a shout out because he's a big help to me. Um, it, we have a very interesting coast because it's so varied. We have inlets, waterways, beaches. I mean, if you really look at, I think we have more inlets than any other coast in the country. Um, and maintaining those inlets uh, is a challenge. So what I see is, is my biggest hurdle is getting money and getting money from hopefully the state to maintain the coast. The state has not been as much involved. North Carolina is very interesting. The um, being from Maryland, uh, Mar the General Assembly in Maryland, um, the legislature in Annapolis, really does support their coast. People I know in South Carolina, people I know in New Jersey, and in Connecticut, where I lived for 10 years, it was the same way. North Carolina is a little bit of a challenge. And, and if you're east of 95, it is very difficult to get your voice heard in Raleigh. 
because North Carolina is very focused on the research triangle, which is Raleigh, Chapel Hill, and Durham, and Charlotte, that sort of center corridor. That's where most of the votes are. That's where most of the people are in the General Assembly representing those areas because of the more condensed population density. And it's very hard to get them to really understand and value the coast. And that was really surprising to me because um, in all my years, and I'm, I'm old, I'm in my 60s, so I've, I've been around for a while. I've not seen um, the sort of disconnect in the state as, as I do here. Now, I'll say that North Carolina is a very big state. You have mountains, you have uh, beach. It's a gorgeous state. It's almost like a little United States. You know, you've got mountains to the west, you've got the yeah. coast to the east, and you've got these um, academic and medical centers in the center. But it was really a challenge getting the legislators to really understand the value of the coast and to appreciate that investing in the coast the return on investment in those dollars is really brought back into the state coffers. And I think that was, that was a big challenge. I think also to get them to recognize that our coastline and our beaches, they're almost buffers. I mean, they impede a lot of the damage from the storm. So not only do they uh, generate revenue from the tourism industry, but it really helps to buffer and protect there's the coastline, you know, building the beaches out, these beach nourishment projects actually protect the coast and therefore the state. And that's been a bit of a challenge. Um, we're making headways. We're doing well. Um, right now, there are two bills in the General Assembly. I just sent out my uh, legislative update right before going on this podcast that um, are for funding, um, getting funding for coastal storm damage mitigation projects. So I think that that's, that's a challenge. Um, as far as the more technical, I do defer to more of my technical people like Ken and, and others. But I will say that, you know, you're not going to get anything done if you don't have the money to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to have the money unless you get people to understand the importance of it and to get them to really appreciate the investment of the dollars are well, well, well worth the return. And that, that's, that's something that we've been very focused on. And having these two events gives people the opportunity to talk about it. Now, now this event, like the November meeting, was is a hybrid event. So you can tune in virtually or in person. And, of course, there's nothing like being in person because that's where you really get to talk to people face-to-face and really get to make those connections Um but, you know, we're doing the best we can with the hybrid, and so far it's been pretty good. I would say getting the funding and keeping the funding is also key. It's one thing to get a line item in a budget to have something funded, and we have to go back every year and advocate for that. But to get a steady recurring funding source is going to be key, and this is the first bill Bill 372, the General Assembly, introduced by one of our coastal representatives, Pat McGillraff, who is phenomenal. This will set up a reoccurring funding source. And we had the same battle several years ago with the shallow draft inlet fund. 
Um, keeping our inlets dredged was very important. And once again, it was a, well, we'll put money aside, do it this year type of thing. But they were able to establish a recurring funding source probably, oh, I guess about seven years now. So we're hoping to do the same thing for the Coastal Storm Damage Mitigation Fund. If we could, if we could keep the shallow draft inlet fund and those recurring funding sources and get this recurring funding source established for the state coastal storm damage mitigation fund, I think that's money coming in to maintain our coast. I think that's very important. Wow. Well, there's my, my Lord, uh, NC byways, ladies and gentlemen is kicking ass is what it sounds like. Uh, and that's it, man. That's how we roll. I, you know, uh, Kathleen, I, you, you say you're from Baltimore. I, I knew, I knew it started with the B. I knew it was maybe Brooklyn or Boston or Baltimore. Yeah, I, just, I got that Northeast attitude, right? Yeah. I, I, it's coming through. It's coming through. And I, I appreciate this, uh, agenda and it sounds like the spring meeting will be an excellent forum to, uh, kind of advance the advance these causes informing uh, local government people people from industry about just how uh, important this can be and they can then maybe uh, take that to Raleigh and uh, try to get this law passed um, but Ken uh, before we go through we're going to go through this meeting agenda uh, Peter and like actually yeah I think it's a great agenda look forward to talking totally about it. Yeah. the hybrid model I, I have not seen this quite yet uh, very interesting um but ken before we begin i before we go through this uh the agenda i want your uh geologist coastal geologist what is your favorite north carolina coastal geological feature yeah <laughs> well when i when i um when i was in school um i worked under dr bill cleary at the time as a undergraduate uh, researcher and uh, really got interested in, in tidal inlets um, lots of interest there some of our the earliest projects that i was involved in were heavily involved in tidal inlets and then when i jumped into the private sector i was blessed with the opportunity to work with uh with tom jarrett here in north carolina um, who is you know essentially a household name in coastal engineering uh, in North Carolina, worked with the Corps of Engineers for 30-some years before retiring and coming to work with with our firm back in 2002. And um, you know, he had done a, a, an awful lot of work with some of the tidal inlets throughout here. So, um, just you know, kind of, kind of following in the footsteps of some some pretty pretty big shoes and having the opportunity to to, to see them work and and some of the research that they they had done throughout their careers and, and build off of that uh has, has been really exciting for me and and then um probably in the last 10 years or so we have gotten um we've gotten to work with a lot of the uh, northern outer banks communities um deer county we do a lot of work with them with their navigation program and the town of duck uh the town of kitty hawk southern shores and kill double hills as well and um it, it's it's just i mean every day when when you when you actually get to jump in and, and do some of the science and, and look at the you know the, the sediment transport and um you know look at some of the numerical models that we're running and, and the volume changes that we're measuring it's it's just a special place up there in the outer banks the forces that are at work um you know some of the offshore uh, bathymetric features that we see and how they interact with the beaches um it, it's it's a full-time job to keep up with that um I was actually doing a, an interview for ASBPA uh, for Shore and Beach a few few weeks ago with Tom Jarrett because he had 
he had won the Murrow P. O'Brien Award uh, back in 2019, and, and we were working on an interview for Shore and Beach. And uh, you know, he was going through all of this, all of the science that he, you know, he was instrumental in developing. And you know, for somebody that's my age, you know, this is stuff that you just look in a textbook and you pick up and you read and you say, okay, this is how we do it. Mm-hmm. And, and and he's talking about how they were actually figuring this out on the fly. And uh, it, it, you know, it it it, it was really. Uh, it was really illustrative to kind of kind of see how how that all came to be. But even still, with you know all of the all of the computing power, the numerical models we have, you know, we still see things all the time that you know that, that just don't line up with what the textbooks tell you that that it should be. And um, you know, like I said, when when you get the opportunity to dive into the science and the engineering, um, it, it's it's just really exciting. It's a great job. It it is a great job, and and. Uh Organizations like NC Byway uh, play a critical role in the advancement of sound coastal management and policy in America. And there are a variety of of organizations that are similar in coastal states around the country. Uh, But NC Byways and Kathleen, I, I loved your description of the politics of the issue in North Carolina, uh, the difference between a, a state that is, uh, that is an east-west state where, uh, it, much like Texas, the political power is in the inland part of the state. It presents very special challenges to the coastal community to, to bring concerns forward to the state of North Carolina. Uh, it uh, goes all the way to the Appalachian Mountains and Asheville, and communities of interest are very distinct. Uh, we have a similar situation in Texas. There are, are about 13 coastal counties, if you, uh, depending on how you how you count them, and about 253 counties total. The political power, even with Houston, even with Corpus Christi, isn't truly on the coast. Uh, mm-hmm. So you're always in this dynamic of trying to educate legislators and policymakers and funders about why the investment in the shoreline is important. And uh, NC Byways that blends local government activists and activism, professional technical expertise and political savvy, man, this is essential. It has to be there to be successful. And uh, I have to ask you on HB 372, the the bill to give you a recurring stable uh, funding source for coastal projects in North Carolina, are you optimistic about the bill? Um, yeah, I, I actually am. I think I think this one has a chance of getting through. I'm really hoping. <laughs> From what I hear, it it is moving forward. Now, of course, when a bill gets introduced and it goes to different committees, it'll get chopped up, it'll get altered, so forth and so on. Incumbent in that bill is uh, the deed stamp the uh, transfer tax, 30% of it going to a coastal storm damage mitigation. Okay. That could be cut down to 20%, 25%, who knows? So there's always the tweaking that goes on and and the uh, backdoor conversation, which I'm not always privy to, of course, but um, it's there, it's gaining momentum. uh, I was in Raleigh. Actually, Ken was with me. We met with the lieutenant governor, who is head of the Senate, um, and we 
talk to him about the bill and explain to him how important it was. And he got it, even though he's not a coastal guy. He's from Greensboro. He, he understands. He's a smart guy. Lieutenant Governor um, Mark uh, Robinson. And then I also have a, a meeting with the, with the Senate Majority Leader. She's new, um, and she's going to meet with, with me and going to explain to she's not a coastal person and hopefully explain to her the importance of it. However, I got to give a shout out to the prior Senate Majority Leader, who was Harry Brown, who was from Onslow County, a coastal county. He's the one that really brought a lot of these issues to the forefront in the General Assembly. And um, it was, you know, when, when you get key lead people in key leadership positions um, put on both committees um, as well as majority leader, um, those people can really bring um, the agenda forth for, for the coast or for whatever they're advocating for. So we were we were very fortunate that we have some coastal legislators in some very key positions in the General Assembly right now. Yeah. And that's what you have to I mean, a lot of politics is striking while the iron's hot, as they say. You have to once things are lined up, you can see them moving forward. You really gotta get in there and that sounds it, it's absolutely true. And I, I wondered, Kathleen, if you don't mind me asking a more detailed question with respect to the bill. You said it's a document transfer fee that it would set aside 30 percent of the, the fee collected on the transfer of real estate. This is a this is not an uncommon uh, funding mechanism. I believe Florida, it, I know, employed it in the past. They may still today. Uh, New Jersey as well, I believe. Is that right? New Jersey as well. So it's not an increase in the, the amount of the fee, but a redirection of the free fee revenue um, into a special account to invest in the North Carolina coast. Is that right? Pretty much. I'm pulling the bill up now. Okay. Yeah, Pete, the, the, uh, I mean, I can chime in a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Dig in some details. But I mean, one of the reasons why, um, one of the reasons why we are pretty encouraged is that uh, you're right. It's not an increase right now that those funds go into the into the uh, the general fund, but yeah. it's a redirection of those into not only the storm damage reduction uh, account, but but full, but three other accounts. And by by putting that into three other accounts, uh, I think the folks that are that are pull, pulling this bill together have made some good allies throughout other parts of the state, and hmm. so they really do have a pretty good consensus right now. To, to drive this bill home. And that, that's why we are really so encouraged um, with, with the way that things are moving. We've seen some pretty good news articles, if you believe what was written in the press. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, there there are some folks that are supporting this bill that, that don't always align with, um, you know, some of the things that, that NC Byway is pushing for. But there's some um, some good alliances that are coming together and, and supporting this bill because of the other the other different accounts that that this money would help um help promote different causes the squeaky wheel gets the grease well smart politics i agree you got to build i agree you got to build a coalition um i I like to say and tyler and i who've worked on local financing for shoreline management projects is the funding source has to be as persistent as the waves that's what we used to say the problem is not a project problem it's a program problem it has to be long term Um, any sense kathleen if this bill were to pass how much annually would be dedicated into the into the uh, shore protection account for the state? I'm not sure, and you know, I'm not going to uh, 
put out a number because okay. you just don't know. Yeah. And I'd hate to put a number out and find that it's not that much or you know, more or whatever. I think we just have to focus right now, like Ken said, there are four different um, uh, areas or groups that it's allocated to, 30, 30, 30, and 10%. So I just hope that we could keep keep our share of these uh, deed stamp excise taxes to the Coastal Storm Damage Mitigation Fund. There is another bill, actually, that she introduced that gets money for flood mitigation, um, a, a fund for flood mitigation. And I, I always said, you know, I remember last year being up there going, you know, you need to look at the, these uh, coastal storm damage mitigation projects, these beach nourishment projects as building a buffer. It's protecting, it's mitigating damage from storms. You know, for every dollar invested pre-storm, you save anywhere from 2 to $3. There's a lot of numbers out there. Who knows? and post-event cleanup. So, you know, here, you know, Department of Public Safety and and the federal level, you have FEMA and so forth and so on, you know, funding these disasters after the fact. We're very reactive in our political system, both on the state and federal level. Oh, my God, you know, we have a disaster. Let's find the money. Well, trying to get legislators on the state level and members of Congress on the federal level to think, proactively and say, look, you wouldn't be spending all this money if you would just take these steps, you know, to sort of mitigate future damage, right? Some of them are finally starting to get it, but I think this is very important. And I think that the money coming from the de-stamp excise tax is one thing, but also when you look at the funds for natural disasters, why not take some of the funding from that and put it in to uh, pre-storm mitigation projects, right? I mean, because if money's going to come from that pot to clean up mess, why can't we take some of that money and put it in a pot to mitigate damage so you're not spending so much after the mess happens? You know, it's uh, it's definitely one of the conundrums of the coast. Uh, but, you know, Kathleen, I think you said it earlier in the show, uh, why should, if you're asking yourself, why should I care about what's going on in North Carolina if I'm not from North Carolina or working in North Carolina or, you know, involved in uh, a shoreline elsewhere on the American shoreline? Well, the answer is that North Carolina is kind of a mini America. And the same uh, challenges that, uh, Kathleen, you're articulating about going into Raleigh are similar with other folks all over the place when you go to Washington, D.C. and you yeah. talk to a, a representative who might not be on the coast or doesn't is not educated, uh, so on and so forth. But let's talk about, we got to talk about the meeting. Uh, coming up here, ladies and gentlemen, April 26th and 27th of this year, virtual and in person. A, a week after the show comes out. That's right. So you got time to make an emergency appearance if, if you want to. But uh, Kathleen, would you kind of take us through here? Day one, we're starting bright and early, 745 breakfast. Uh, take us through uh, the, the first day here of the spring meeting. Well, the spring local governments meeting, we always put the uh, panel for the state legislators first because the, um, they need to be in Raleigh in the afternoon, early afternoon. So that way... If they want to come in person, they can. They can. 
in this particular case, you know, zoom in. But that set up for them because that's a time, probably one of the only times you can get them all together. And with that, we usually have an update from a Division of Water Resources. Now, the Division of Water Resources is within the Department of Environmental Quality, or it used to be Diener. Um, that's where the funding is out. It goes to after the General Assembly you know, puts X amount in for storm damage mitigation projects and shallow draft inlets. So they actually handle the funds and the grants and so forth and so on. So when the local government, when they need money, they they contact the Division of Water Resources. That's where they apply for those funds. And Kevin Hart runs that fund and he's on our board as an ex officio. That's good. Um, so uh, we also have an update from the North Carolina Division of Coastal Management, Braxton Davis. He's also an ex officio board member uh, for NC Byway. So he gives his update on what's going on with the uh, Division of Coastal Management. And of course, it's always an Army Corps of Engineer update. As I'm on the podcast with you, I just got an email from Christine Brayman. It's zooming in and someone else is going to be there talking. So I got to add him in. All these last-minute changes. Yeah. Of course, tourism. It's a natural partner to the coast, right? I mean, we need tourism. Tourism needs us. We need them to bring people in. We need them to help us secure funds for the coast. Well, Kathleen, it's a great start, and 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 uh, it's smart for the organization to have a broad uh, a broad representation from the legislature right off of the bat with the agencies who run these programs and the federal government. Uh, you know, this is how the work of educating and bringing the agenda forward occurs. Uh, it's such a great meeting set up. And I do want to say, because you can attend virtually, if you're in another state, uh, the ability to listen into the conversation in North Carolina to see what they're doing is super valuable. So if you're in Alabama or you're in Texas or you're in California, or up on the eastern seaboard. Uh, this is a quality discussion that you guys have put together here, and uh, I'd, I'd encourage people to to listen in because it's a great setup. And uh, as Tyler said, the issues that you are trying to work through are not unlike the issues in other places. The specifics differ, but the fundamental idea of, of solid funding, policy support, state agency engagement, Right down the middle, Kathleen, a really good good start to this meeting. Well, let's keep going, I guess. I join you in that. I think it's a, it's a huge issue around the country, how to tackle storm risk reduction management, key thing right. panel Ken's going to oversee. I also liked on, uh, I also really liked on day two, I, I really appreciate this Coastal Partners meeting. It's good to see Derek Brockbank on the agenda, the newly minted executive director of the Coastal States Organization on the agenda, along with Nicole Elko, so from ASBPA. Uh, Ken, why do these uh, inter-organizational partnerships matter so much when we start talking about effective coastal management? Yeah, I think some of it comes down to what I was saying earlier, that this is a this is a relatively small industry and uh, you know, the, 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 pro the problems that we're dealing with here in North Carolina are not unlike the problems that are being dealt with at a national level with ASBPA and other states. You talked about Texas, uh, 
Uh, we've got offices down in Florida. We do a lot of work down in Florida. We've done work in Louisiana in the past. So the, these issues are, are, are being dealt with um, in a lot of different ways. And, and you've got to be talking to folks um, you know, that are doing this a little bit differently. I mean, one of the things you mentioned earlier about sort of the, the, the creativity and the, and the interesting things coming out of North Carolina is that, um, you know, un, unlike uh, unlike in Florida, where there's a, there's a very well-established state uh, dedicated funding source and, and some other areas like New Jersey, where there's a heavy presence of federal projects. You know, we've got our, a, a, few, a few federal projects that have been around quite a while here in North Carolina. But for the most part, most of the successful beach nourishment projects up and down the coast are, are things that have been done almost entirely uh, locally funded. So not even, you know, Kathleen talked a little bit about the, the, the initiatives to get state funding, and, and we've had some dedicated funding for navigation sand for a while. Some communities um, that are fortunate enough to have access to navigation channels and inlets have taken really good advantage of those programs. So we still need um, something to be able to have the state participate regularly in these projects. But in the meantime, Folks have not sat around, you know, with their with their head in their hands, just whining and, and complaining about not being able to do anything. Some really innovative programs have come out of this, and I know you and I have talked a couple of times when we were working on the the funding paper uh, with ASBPA about you know some of the things that have been done in Carteret County, some of the things that have been done in Dare County, where um, you know very little federal or state funding uh, into those counties for beach nourishment, but they're, they're they are managing huge programs, and so. Yep. Um, you know, we we want to we want to tell our story to these partners to let them know, um, you know, what 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 their what their folks can do, and we also want to hear other success stories because we don't, not all the great ideas come out, come out of North Carolina. Well, so we want we want to hear what, from these other partners as well. So uh, you know, um, yeah, it, Ken, I just think uh, you know when it comes to local leadership on the American shoreline, I think uh, it my experience having worked in Florida, having worked along the Texas coast quite a bit and in, in the Carolinas, I think I've found some of the most professional and innovative thinking at the local government level in North Carolina. And I, this is why I think uh, you, what your organization is doing and what has been accomplished in North Carolina at the local government level is inspiring to communities that are struggling. Uh, as you said, there are a number of shoreline management programs that are fundamentally sound financially because of the leadership at the local level. Um, it's really remarkable. And um, there's so much to be drawn from the North Carolina experience in, 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 from what, I, what, what, what I've witnessed uh, around the country. Um, I would like to ask a question, Kathleen. I'm just dying to know more about this. This is kind of getting to the end of the, end of the program. But um, wind power is a huge discussion uh, uh, on the Atlantic coast of America. Uh, the manager uh, for the Wind Coalition, the Southeastern Wind Coalition, Jamie Simmons, is on the program. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that got to the agenda and what you hope to hear from Jamie Simmons. What's going on with wind power in North Carolina? Um, our governor, Governor Cooper, is pushing very hard for wind energy and other natural sources. Uh, other um, environmentally sound sources of energy. So with that on the horizon, plus, you know, given North Carolina's coast, the winds on the coast, it just seems to be primed for it. So 
being on the board of ASBPA and co-chairing their governmental affairs, um, a uh, proposed bill in the, in the Senate came across my lap basically to review, and it's called the RISE Act. And one of the things in that, one of the topics is, gonna, is a cost sharing with wind energy analogous to the what go mesa is on the gulf coast right yep so i thought about that and i thought hmm if they're gonna you know push offshore wind in north carolina we really should get in the forefront of this on the federal level especially and uh work out some kind of cost sharing where north carolina can benefit and the coast can benefit so I did a little research, and I'm not sure how I got Jamie Simmons' name, but I did reach out to her, and she, I had her her predecessor, the person that uh, was there prior to her, I forgot the gentleman's name, but he was on my master email list. He's no longer there, so when I reached out, Jamie got back to me, that's what happened. And I told her a little bit about who we were and what we wanted to do in the meeting, and she was thrilled to be on the agenda so i think that and once again it goes back what i said earlier we have an agenda we have these topics but i like to think outside the box look at what's coming down the pipe what's coming down the road in front of us and kind of stay on top of that and educate our members on what this is about because it's much better to get information from an nc byway meeting than some kind of twisted narrative or skewed view out of a newspaper. So I oftentimes like to have people on different sides of the issue uh, discuss an issue, but I think that right now, uh, just introducing everybody to this um, concept is going to be important and it's something we'll keep following. It's a huge topic and I think the the interest of looking at the GOMESA model, which is the Gulf of Mexico Energy Security Act, it is a revenue sharing uh, model or statute. This is in federal waters for deep water oil and gas development. Texas is a huge beneficiary, as are the other Gulf of Mexico states. But it, it, you're quite right. Uh, with wind power development and energy development on the East Coast being more in the wind sector, revenue sharing for the states, is it could be an absolutely critical uh, funding uh, platform for projects going forward. A really smart opportunity. Great to see that on the agenda. I have to say, uh, Kathleen, looking at, at your spring meeting and uh, coming up April 26th and 27th, uh, attendance available virtually, so anywhere in the country. There's just a great conversation here going on in North Carolina. A lot to learn. I think you guys... Uh, uh, really have put together a great show, and I'm, I'm looking forward to listening in on the meeting coming up uh, a week from the time this show comes out. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Kathleen Riley, the Executive Director of the North Carolina Beach Inlet and Waterway Association, joined by Ken Wilson, who's uh, with Coastal Protection Engineering and on the Executive Committee of NC Byways Board, uh, two of the great professionals leading uh, coastal thinking in the great state of North Carolina. We really appreciate you guys coming on the show uh, and great luck with the meeting. Uh, find the registration folks at ncbyway.org. That's ncbiwa.org or find the registration link on Coastal News Today. So we hope you, if you're interested, jump into that. 
Uh, Ken, final thoughts? Oh, this has been this has been a lot of fun, and uh, appreciate the the opportunity to highlight the organization. Uh, so glad you guys are recognizing some of the great things that are going on in North Carolina, and uh, we hope to keep that going. Well, glad to have you on, and Kathleen, the final word from the executive director, as always. Uh, join us. It's a party. <laughs> <laughs> it's in a great location. Well, thanks a lot to you both, and have a great week, and uh, look forward to hearing from everyone at the meeting coming up. In part two of this show, we're going to be talking with Megan Blaskovich, a geospatial maritime expert with Walpert, an architecture engineering and geospatial firm, about the mapping and investigative work they're doing for NOAA and USGS in the Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, Yes, and also learn a little bit about an amazing coastal company. Uh, on the American shoreline. So that's one of the cool things that we get to do, Peter. Yeah. Is that these professionals work for uh, companies and contractors for the government that do so much of the important work uh, around the American shoreline is done by these very specialized, very capable companies. So today we're going to learn a little bit about Wolpert. So we're going to talk today to uh, one of their great project managers from the world headquarters of Wolpert in Dayton, Ohio, Joining us is Megan Blaskovich, and Megan is a geospatial and maritime expert and a project manager. Uh, she's leading a project in an amazing place, the Northern Mariana Islands of all places. And so we're going to learn about that today, and I'm looking forward to talking to Megan. Me too. Uh, really, I'm, I, I, I'm really excited to, to learn about Megan, and really from the project manager's yeah. perspective, I rubber mean, rubber meets the road. This is it. This yeah. is it. This, these are the lieutenants, yeah. the the line battle commanders <laughs> of the American shoreline, making sure that the troops go where they need to go, yeah. that the projects get completed. <laughs> yeah. Well, Megan, thank you very much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on the American Shoreline podcast. It's great to talk to you today. Hey, thanks, guys. Yeah. This well, be here. This is my first podcast. It's a pleasure to be uh, to be the ones putting together the first show you've been on, and uh, this is the first show we've ever done about the Mariana Islands. Uh, before we dive into that specific project, introduce our audience to Wolpert. Okay. Um, yeah. So Wolpert is an architecture, engineering, geospatial um, firm. We're based, you know, our headquarters are Dayton, Ohio, um, but we're really across the nation and in the last few years have spread international. Um, I work primarily in the uh, maritime and geospatial program sector. Um, so I manage a lot of the NOAA and the USGS um, projects is so much more of that has been, you know, kind of focusing on bathymetry and topobathy LIDAR and coastal resilience, you know, all of that kind of coastal mapping. And, you know, within that we have, you know, you know, like 13 aircraft in our fleet, you know, we've collected like over 55,000 square miles of bathymetry. And that's just, you know, with kind of the, the coastal focus, you know, wow. we also do all of the more traditional stuff that you would think of, with, you know, geospatial. So, right, topo LIDAR imagery, planimetrics, and then architecture and engineering, which are fascinating and absolutely not my specialties. Well, no, but this is this is good. Uh, and th- thanks, Megan, for going over that. And I want to follow up and get a little bit more clarity specifically, because when we hear architecture, engineering and geospatial, uh, 
Those are big words. Uh, and this company has a lot of expertise. But specifically here, you mentioned having a fleet. Uh, we're talking, you were talking about your clients in the GIS and NOAA, bathymetry, uh, topography, and this fleet of aircraft. Can you talk a little bit about just like what, how you collect, how you do these things? What, what are you doing out there as a company? Yeah, so um, we kind of are an end-to-end solution for, you know, any of the geospatial kind of products that you would see that you're kind of familiar with, you know, anytime you open up a map, you know, or an app or something, that data has to come from somewhere, that base map, that imagery, background, um, you know, all of the elevations, and, you know, all of that starts with an agency, whether it be a federal agency or a state and local agency or somebody saying, we want this data and then they'll contract Wolpert and we'll look at the specifications. We'll um, have the aircraft. We have our sensors um, that we own. We'll go up, we'll collect all of the data that they need. We will make it, um, you know, just speaking of LIDAR, you know, we'll, you know, make sure everything meets the project's specifications, um, the point density, the classification, any of the value add products that they would want, if they want additional classifications, if they want contours derived from that, if they want um, building footprints, deliver all of that to the client and then, you know, help them set it up, analyze it, do what they they need to kind of get it out to whoever their end user base is going to be. So it's an end-to-end solution. We'll do it all from getting just a random, you know, polygon drawn on a map to putting, you know, plans in the air, processing terabytes of data, making it, you know, manageable, pretty looking files at the end that you can just post out to your clients in like a digestible format and make it make it look effortless, which it's not. Well, (laughs) no, it's not. And, you know, founded in 1911, Peter, uh, it's the the techniques have come a long way in these spaces, and it's neat to see uh, a company evolve to really this is high tech stuff that is happening now. It is indeed, and and you know I think Megan, what, what I think all coastal professionals know whether they're out in the South Pacific where you're working on this project at the Northern Mariana Islands or along the American shoreline, you have to know what's there and you have to understand it accurately. Geospatial data and mapping is the foundation of good coastal management and good shoreline management. So uh, we want to talk about this project in the Northern Mariana Islands. Um, I understand the client for this particular project that started in 2019 is NOAA, uh, the USGS, and FEMA. Can you introduce us to this project that you've been uh, spearheading as project manager? Yeah, so um, we received the task orders from USGS and NOAA um, for this project in spring 2019. So Wilbert is, um, USGS does most of their contracting through their um, gypsy contracts. Now I have to think about, I have to write it down to remember what the acronym stands for, but it's pretty much the USGS's geospatial services contract. Okay. And so FEMA was a funding contributor on that USGS portion of the task order. And then NOAA, um, NOAA's Office of Coastal Management has another geospatial services contract. And that one is um, CGSC, which is the Coastal Geospatial Services contract. Okay. And Wolpert is a prime contractor on both of those contract vehicles. So USGS and NOAA came together, kind of created a scope of work that would suit both of their needs. 
and then divided it into the two separate task orders. So each of the agencies was actually responsible for a portion of the funding um, and a set of the deliverables contracted Wolbert. And, you know, since then we've been, um, even though it has been through contract vehicles, we've all been in communication with updating all the deliverables and making sure everything is being met. And again, this data is going to be used by USGS and NOAA OCM and FEMA and um, NOAA NGS, which is the NOAA Geological Survey. So there's a lot, a lot of interest, a lot of stakeholders in this data who've had input and, you know, making sure they're getting the most value for it and kind of taking everyone's input and really through the main contracts from NOAA OCM and USGS kind of. Mm-hmm. And Northern Mariana Islands out in the Pacific Ocean, 185 square mile area, 14 islands. And a lot of the listeners may not know the Northern Mariana Islands, but they probably have heard of Saipan, especially if they're any kind of a World War II historical buff of any kind. That's Saipan uh, in Tinian, the island of Tinian, which was the launching point for the Enola Gay that dropped the nuclear uh, bomb on Hiroshima in Nagasaki. So a sad component of the island. But it's such a long way away. You're managing a project to map uh, a, a maritime geospatial project really literally around the world from where you are located in Dayton, Ohio. Talk about the logistics of executing this work. Uh, what kind of equipment do you have to deploy? How do you manage something so distant like this? So you pretty much have to set up another little office hub, you know, out in this this little tropical paradise. For this project, we used an aircraft that was based out of New Zealand, and um, it was a 406. And, you know, pretty much to get from New Zealand to, you know, these islands, you have to kind of island hop your way over. I mean, these are small aircraft. Is that a Cessna 406? Yes, yes, I'm sorry, it's a Cessna 406. Twin engine, um, single engine. Let's get into the airplane thing. Yeah, just describe this bird. <laughs> no. What do we got? I'm going to look it up on the internet while we're talking. But the purpose of the aircraft, of course, is is the platform for the lidar detection equipment, right? Is that what the yes? Okay, tell us about yeah. that. Yeah, and so the lidar equipment that we were using for this project, we used the uh, Leica Chiraptor of four. Um, huh. Yeah, that's a good one. And then we had the deep channel as well, which would make it the like a Hawkeye. Yep. So it kind of mounts on. Okay, so she's a twin engine bird, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. And uh, sleek design. Yeah. For Cessna. Yeah. They're not known necessarily for having the sleekest design, known for the Sky Wagon, uh, the 172 and the 182. But right. here we see a, a, yeah. a sleek, modern looking twin engine uh, propeller uh, yeah, aircraft. Turboprop. Turboprop. And, uh, LIDAR equipment located on the bottom, laser finding equipment. Tell us about LIDAR and and how that's changed the world of geospatial mapping. Yeah, I mean, LIDAR, it's people used to have to go out if they wanted to collect elevation data with, you know, transits and total stations and triangulate and, you know, all of those great stories of surveyors um, kind of traversing and surveying the nation. And then it moved to imagery where, you know, you would have collecting imagery and then making stereo pairs and 
you know, digitizing of her big, you know, light tables. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not, that, that was all honestly before my time. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, yeah. I'm not an expert on, you know, the kind of soft copy imagery, but then, you know, LIDAR came around and, you know, it just, with the way the LIDAR pulses work, you can just collect um, the elevation data pretty much from anywhere from the sky. You can fly large swaths of data quickly, you know, with the, uh, the GPS, the IMU, which automatically kind of calculates, you know, the position you get incredibly high accuracy out of the sensors. Um, and you can get, you know, so much density in your LIDAR, um, in your points, get so much detail, you know, depending on how many points, you know, you're kind of contracted to individual trees, rooftops, you know, cars and driveways. I mean, yeah, it's, and, and, you know, Peter, we, uh, when we go to ASBPA mm-hmm. and we look at those poster sessions or go into any of those conference rooms, uh, many of them, you'll, good chances are, fair chance being yeah. that when you look at the graphics, you will see a LIDAR generated yeah. uh, image. It's changed the world. And I think, the, uh, Megan, as, as you said, back in the day when it was done by hand, incredibly tedious, uh, LIDAR has changed the world of mapping and geospatial mapping in particular uh, enormously and particularly on these dynamic coastal environments where detail matters uh i know that on the texas coast the the lidar surveys of the shoreline are particularly important to identify the line of vegetation and the mean high water line all of which have important regulatory implications uh how did you become an expert in lidar or or what how, how did you learn this system as it came into the professional world over your career? Um, so I kind of graduated into this career. My my start was actually not in geospatial. It was in archaeology, and I got into GIS through archaeology. Um, and then, you know, I was a GIS specialist and got the opportunity to become um, actually an, an IFSAR radar analyst. And then from there, just got more into working with LIDAR, um, some of the other geospatial products that kind of complement it. And as I just kind of got more and more into it, I um, kind of moved from the tech side, the analyst side to the management side. Well, I, you know, the, the Wolpert has been at it in the Northern Mariana Islands, which, by the way, is a commonwealth of the United States of America uh, from back yes. in the 1970s. Uh, but the project has been going on for a couple of years, as you said, starting in 2019, the data acquisition process all through 2020 um, and the development of the products that are uh, required in the, in the scope of work with NOAA and USGS. Um, did, you, did you map all of the 14 islands of the Mariana Islands or was there a particular focus? And yeah. We didn't map them all in this task order. Um, so in this task order, we mapped... Saipan, Pagan, Rhoda, Tinian, FDM, and Zhuizhan. <laughs> okay. The, 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 gosh, there, there's a couple that start with A, um, and I 
I always get really, really nervous to say it because I, I always pronounce it. But about it six, seven, or eight of the 14. Uh, yes. Are the ones, yeah. and, and the, most of the population in the in the Marianas is on Tinian and Saipan, and I think on Rota as well. Rota, yes. So we, we collected um, those primary islands. And then, you know, Pagan itself is another one of the large islands, you know, and that's kind of, you know, the farthest north. Um, we collected that one as well, but some of the smaller. Um, okay. Megan, I got to interrupt here. Can, can, can you take me back onto yeah. the airplane? Back, yeah, I want to get back on board oh. the Cessna. Oh, <laughs> so okay. you're flying. So like, let's say, let's just say, for example, we're in data acquisition phase. And this morning we're going to take off and we're going to uh, fly around Tinian and we're going to mm-hmm. collect data. Um, what what happens? Who's on the aircraft? I, I know there's a pilot. Are there um, some technicians on board? Um, how is that done? And then, is the does the airplane kind of fly in a grid pattern? Uh, wh- how do they how do they collect the data? Yeah, so there's the pilot um, and a sensor operator on board who's um, operating the sensor. And prior to the um, going up in the air in the acquisition, um, we do lay out as part of our initial setup, you know, the flight plan for the islands, and you know that's. It's kind of linearly based out um, when designing the flight plan. A lot of things are taken into consideration. Um, the point density um, that you want to achieve, how much side lap, you know, kind of when you're mm-hmm. flying lines next to each other, making sure you have enough overlap between them. So if anything goes off course a little bit, you know, you're still going to be meeting your density. Um, your altitude, you know, particularly on an island like Pagan, where you're going to want to be flying relatively low um for the bathymetry, ah. but then, you know, um, Pagan is, has a big volcano and steep cliffs and it goes from ocean to very, you know, treetop, just clip yeah. it, just buzz yeah. in there, treetop level, get that bathymetric yeah. and, data. You know, or even just like, if you're not careful, just like fly right, fly right into the side of hmm. a volcano. Um, so planning your altitudes very carefully, stacking your flight lines and making sure you're getting the proper coverage with all of the proper safety protocols um, and at the same time optimizing both the topographic returns and the bathymetric returns. Um, wow. So do you have like a flight director on your team who, because it sounds like you have both the technician who's, who wants to collect the right data and, and get that overlap and all that. Yeah. Well, per some pilots, I guess. And then you've got your pilots who obviously need to select a safe route. And um, yeah, so that's all coordinated. Um, we do, you know, on our acquisition team, we do have the person who's kind of the expert, the um, expert with the Chiraptor of flight planning that specifically. Um, they create all the flight plans for that. And there is software, you know, that's designed to make sure you're not going to fly into mountains and still get off right. the And that is, you know, coordinated with, reviewed with the pilots, you know, making sure everybody's aware of um, any additional restrictions. You know, I don't think we ran into any on this project, but sometimes there are, um, you know, you'll have military bases where right. you can't flight fly, restrictions, you know, no fly zones, restricted areas. Exactly. Yeah, that's we can talk about those on a different podcast. So we didn't have those here, but they're they're out there. Right. So they'll coordinate that with the pilots, and then, um, but that that person who's doing the flight planning isn't necessarily in the field. Um, that's kind of a, a prep step, and then in the fields, um, the pilot and the sensor operator will decide, you know, which days based on weather conditions, based on, you know, and weather conditions being cloud 
for the topo side, but also water clarity, turbidity, excuse me, turbidity, mm-hmm. um, kind of swell for the bathy side of things. And they'll determine which kind of lines they want to go for that day. And then there will be a lot of back and forth between um, the, that sensor either in the pilot and kind of the initial flight planner and um, data QC person who, once the data gets flown, they get it so they can review the data as quickly as possible in a fast turnaround to see if any reflights are necessary. Yeah, I could see that being really important. And is that person, the, the uh, data quality control, uh, is that person um, back in Dayton uh, with you? I mean... So a lot of that, um, some of it can be done in the field and we do have some, sometimes that's done in the field. And then a lot of the bathymetric um, topobathy work is actually done based out of our Portland office. Hmm. Great which, city, which is, by the way. Great there, and great you know, company. Look at, look. Yeah. I mean, you see to have <laughs> the staff, to have these offices. Be, I mean, we're talking about how many, uh, here's a question, in a, uh, let's just say a flight, how many pieces of data are collected here? What are we talking about? So in a specific flight, um, it, it really depends on um, I, I'm thinking in terms of flight lines, it really depends on how far you are. For instance, if we were based on Saipan and we were collecting Saipan that day, we would be able to collect more flight lines and more data. Um, right. And we would if we were based on Saipan and had to fly out to Pagan and then fly around and get back to Saipan on uh, our fuel. Right. Overall, the, the whole project of um, CNMI, which was um, about 140 square miles of topo data, 73 square miles of bathymetric data. It was about 589 flight lines. So that really varies um, kind of day to day, weather to weather, but there's there's a ton of data coming back. And with the Hawkeye, the deep channel, you know, the Chiroptera 4, it has both a red topographic laser and a green bathymetric laser. It has a ton of points and there's a ton of data that comes through it also has a um, an rcd30 camera that yeah. is collecting the whole time to help us with qc so it's ton- pushing tons and tons of data through the process is it day. gigabytes of data terabytes terabytes of data yeah. a lot of information is available in this instrumentation that's now used and one of the interesting things that i think uh that a lot of people don't know uh is this bathymetric survey Uh, capability that can be done by aerial lasers. Um, How deep uh, of a typical profile can that system handle when you're flying a shoreline and trying to collect uh, bathymetric data on the seafloor? So that really can depend both on the strength of the sensor, um, of the laser, and also the water conditions. And the clarity of the water, yeah. Yeah, the clarity of the water um, is a huge component. So, you know, for instance, in the CNMI, where it's pristine water conditions, it's pretty much the best you can get. It's pretty Um, good. Yeah, I would think. Yeah. I'm looking at the pictures, Um, and it's the clear water. Let's just say that. Yeah, it's nice. Um, I haven't been there, but I I hear it's nice. I didn't get to go. For the Chiroptera, um, the green laser itself, the standard Chiroptera shallow channel, you would probably get... um, 15 to 20 meters uh, penetration in 
that clear water. And then 15 with to the 20 Hawkeye, meters, that's, that's getting, that's, yes. that's standing. That's, meters. I bet it's, 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 yeah. And then with the Hawkeye, we were getting consistently 45 meter depths. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. A, that's fantastic. From an aircraft, you yeah, know, you got to think that just yeah. how efficient that is. Yeah, we were flying, for the Bathy, we were usually flying about 450 meters above um, sea level. Sounds that like sounds a, like a fun pilot job. Yeah. It sounds like a good job, doesn't it? This whole project yeah. sounds like it. Do you, do you ever, this sounds like a really great job that you have. Um, do you enjoy it? I do enjoy it, yeah. Um, and I, I really like the fact that I work on these projects that are in really interesting locations. Um, they're not, you know, in, in a way they seem like very untouched compared to a lot of other types of projects that you can get. You know, they're beautiful locations. Uh, there's like a little bit of a sense of adventure and discovering something new with them. Plus mm-hmm. it's these areas have been so undermapped for so long. It's the impacts of this data and just knowing that I'm a part of this would be, it's going to be a huge benefit, you know, over a place that, you know, updates their LIDAR like every two years. Yeah. Um, so it's, just, it's going to have a huge impact and kind of being a part of that and, you know, knowing I mean, I don't know the next time somebody will be going out and a company will be going out and doing a full, you know, remapping in high density LIDAR over um, the CNMI. So getting to be a part of it this round is really very cool. Yeah, it is. And uh, from a from a and we can speculate a little bit or talk. I'd like to talk a little bit about what NOAA and USGS hope to accomplish uh, with this mapping project that you are managing. Um we all know that sea level rise is a concern. Uh, it is particularly a concern in the South Pacific and in the Pacific Island nations, which tend to be somewhat low and somewhat vulnerable. Um, in could you could you tell us a little bit about what you think the implications or the use of the data that you're collecting? What do you think NOAA and USGS hope to learn from the work that you're managing? So I think, you know, from the topographic side, it would be kind of identifying what is the condition of the islands now? How big are they? What are the features on them? Um, So to kind of help set up a better baseline, you know, moving forward. Also planning for coastal resiliency, like you said, with um, sea level rise, Um, you know, FEMA. FEMA is a partner in the project you know, again, for coastal resistance, for hazard mapping. Um, for the bathymetric data, there's also a lot of interest in um, benthic habitats. You know, what kind of corals are out there? What kind of fish are out there? Um, you know, so not only sea level rise and coastal resiliency, but also some like coastal health, which, you know, are obviously very tied together. And then the data, you know, would also be used by, um, like I said, NOAA, NGS is another branch of NOAA which uh, is responsible for updating nautical charts and shoreline mapping. So um, potentially be used to help in that component. I, I'm trying to think of more more specifics because the data set is going to be so vital to so many components there. I mean, even just, you know, mapping infrastructure out there on the island, it can be used for that too. Right. I think, I think that like what's, what's crazy about uh, the modern world is just how into how important, this data, GIS, uh, topographic data has become to planning uh, and managing coastal areas and frankly everywhere is this is incredibly uh, 
a part of the modern world. And so to go out and do the first real uh, collection of this data in, in the Northern Mariana Islands is uh, important work. It's you're right. It sets the baseline. I think it will be used in a myriad of ways um, by the government, by NOAA, by FEMA, uh, by all of the clients here on this uh, USGS. And actually, that's what I wanted to ask you about, Megan. You know, you you have three, kind of three clients in a way. Um, and uh, I've, I've heard you actually describe this as a partnership, um, which is interesting to me. And it just seems like it was a really successful uh, relationship between Wolpert and your federal partners in this. And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit on, on you're the project manager here. So you were kind of uh, at the wheel. Uh, any advice, uh, any, any, any stories or, you know, how would you size that up, the, the success of the partnership? I think the success, I think it's been incredibly successful. You know, USGS and NOAA OCM, and I'm sure other parts of NOAA, but I've, this was specifically with NOAA OCM, have worked together um, before. And I did, you know, come onto this project with, um, you know, kind of a background and like relationship, you know, with NOAA. So that did help, but it was just, you know, having everybody at the table all the time, um, like the kickoff meeting, like, I don't know, 30 people. It was massive. Wow. Um, just making sure, you know, everybody's voices were heard, just kind of getting everything up, set up front as early as possible. And then just, you know, kind of bouncing things, you know, back and forth. Um, just a lot of communications, Everybody was really excited about the data. I think everybody gets kind of excited again about projects that are, you know, like in the Pacific and these remote areas that just kind of sound like really, you know, exotic and adventurous. I think everybody gets really excited about yes. um, that kind of work. So it, it made it a lot of fun. I think what's interesting and what people may not think about here is because the Marianas uh, is a commonwealth of the United States, it's called an insular area, a special category. Uh, the Mariana Islands sends delegates delegates to the Republican and Democratic National Convention. They participate in the presidential election, although the uh, citizens of the Marianas are not U.S. citizens, don't vote uh, directly. Uh, they do have a delegate in the U.S. House of Representatives, for example. So as a protectorate, they're part of the Coastal Management Program system under the Coastal Zone Management Act that NOAA operates through the Office for Coastal Management. I mean, this is part of the work of NOAA and FEMA and, as you say, USGS to assist with the management of shorelines uh, in the Coastal Management Program. And yeah, Marianas is in that system. Yeah. And that's also, um, you know, with the USGS, they have 3DAP, which is, you know, the mapping, you know, making the 3D map of the nation and this falls into that as well you know so they want to get all conus alaska everything and you know cnmi is is under that umbrella so you know and that means all of this data is going to be publicly posted and available as well once it kind of gets through all the pcs and you know all the final drives are created it's it's going to be able to be used by everyone well i understand that the products of this uh, maritime geospatial mapping project are coming are now in final preparation and final review step uh megan when do you expect to see the finished product and are they going to be made available to the public if they're interested in seeing it yes so 
Um, I would expect them to be made available to the public probably later on this summer. Um, they will be completely available to the public. Um, I would imagine at least through NOAA OCM's Digital Coast platform mm-hmm. and yep. the USGS um, national map. Yeah. I don't remember. I don't remember if that is actually if you just type in USGS national map if that's the name of the platform. <laughs> well, digital different. digital coast for sure. I think it's, it's a, is a likely repository. Digital coast uh, will um, yes. Mm-hmm. Digital coast will definitely be hosting it as well. And and yeah, it will be all publicly available. Again, right now it's um, just in final review, which is. Uh, you know, making sure the formatting, all the metadata, all of the reports are um, kind of in line and ready to be going um, posted out. And once that gets wrapped up, we'll just, you know, make a couple couple extra hard drives, send them on, and then they'll, they'll get posted. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing it. And like you say, there's something special about really looking at these incredibly great maps. And because of the cameras and the visuals as well, that's super, super interesting. Uh, for those of us who like to nerd out on coastal data and information, uh, this will be a great product to, to look for coming up in the summertime. So as you wrap up the Marianas Project, uh, Megan, and looking ahead, uh, what's on your plate at Wolpert as a professional geospatial expert? We have a whole bunch of work in Hawaii, which I'm managing across, again, task orders with USGS, NOAA OCM, and NOAA NGS, we have a direct task order through them to, um, we've already done some of the topographic mapping of the Big Island of Hawaii under a different task order, under a previous task order. Um, so currently we're tasked to finish topo collection over the remainder of the Big Island, or the remainder of the primary islands in Hawaii. So the Big Island, Maui, Molokai, um, Oahu, Lanai, we have a topobathy collection over Kauai, which is going to be the same specifications as the CNMI project. And then through NOAA NGS, um, some of the further west, northern, um, northwestern Hawaii, Hawaiian islands, you know, the Frigate Shoals, Necker and Noho. So all, all of those are also <laughs> happening. Well, it sounds like a great profession uh, <laughs> that you're in. And, uh, you know, coastal professionals, Uh, work very hard in the background, often behind the scenes. The public doesn't know a lot about what companies like Wolpert do. And uh, it's great to be able to talk about that a little bit and shed a little insight and a little uh, inside information to to our listeners out there about what goes into great coastal management and great coastal mapping and geospatial work. Uh, It seems like a lot of fun and a great job that you've got. Uh, I got to think you're... uh, your friends are occasionally like, really, do you get to go to Hawaii? And you're like, yeah, I do it for work. Yeah, <laughs> I do. It's, I, I do I, I do get pretty lucky once conferences start again um, with the coastal stuff. They're often in Hawaii or nice, nice locations everybody else is going to. Just have to make sure that they're in February <laughs> when it's pretty cold oh, and dating. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. When you're oh, yeah. Get out of yeah, there. I think last year it was actually I was in Hawaii um, right when COVID lockdown started for uh, presenting on an update on this project. So. Not yeah. bad. Not bad. Megan, no, thank you for thank you for sharing this project with our audience. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Megan Blaskovich. She is a geospatial maritime expert and a project manager for Wolpert. Coming to us today from uh, the world headquarters in Dayton, Ohio. 
I really enjoyed learning about the Northern Mariana Islands uh, geospatial mapping project, topographic and bathymetric survey work that you're managing. It sounds really cool. Uh, Megan, thank you so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is fun.